All right, welcome back to the EM Stud Podcast. I'm Nate Lewis here with Scott Weeders, and Scott, you know it's it's actually been a little while since we've done this co-host thing. It's it's finally great to be chatting with you. How are things out there? Well, Nate, I'm a lot better now that we're talking together. I've really missed you, brother. But things are fantastic here in Texas. Yeah, things are going well. We just did some uh, mock interviews for our students today, and I really thought it was a great experience for both of us. So. Really excited about this interview season, and it's underway. Yeah, yeah, I can't believe it. We're we're in another application season already. Man, time just flies by. Well, we've got some great guests on today to talk about a topic that, uh, quite frankly, Scott, I don't think we could have handled just on our own, and that topic is application yellow flags. Ooh, yeah, I mean, I, I cringe a little bit when I hear that because we've all got a yellow flag in our history. Nobody's perfect. What, what really is a yellow flag, Nate? I mean, why is this important? Um, tell us more. Well, you know, I, I think we're past the point at which applications can really be uh, redone. You can't obviously go back and change your grades or, or publish a new paper between now and interviews. So your application's out there. But now everybody's waiting for interviews, and if you have some things on your application that need explaining, I think that's really what we're referring to as yellow flags. We want to talk about how to address that. How do you appropriately bring up some things on your application that may be a little questionable, uh, and how to do it professionally, how to do it so that you still are competitive for a residency spot in emergency medicine. So... Let's meet our guests, two amazing EM physician educators from the University of Kentucky. Hey guys, this is Samir Desai. Uh, nice to meet you, Nate uh, and Scott. Uh, I've been a uh, faculty member here at the University of Kentucky since December 2007. Uh, I was uh, originally from Texas, grew up in Houston, went to Texas A&M for undergrad at medical school. Uh, did, whoop! Yeah, exactly, whoop. Uh, did my residency in Arkansas between 2001 and four, and then worked in Richmond, Virginia. So I've kind of got a connection with both you guys. Uh, worked there in the community hospitals for about three and a half years while my wife was doing her residency. And uh, then she decided to do a fellowship and matched here at University of Kentucky. And that's kind of how I ended up here. About a year after I was here, I was asked to run the fourth-year clerkship as, as the U.K. started a third-year clerkship at that point, and the person who was running it couldn't handle both or didn't want to try to handle both. Uh, and so I started the fourth-year clerkship at that point, and a few years later was asked to also be the assistant program director and have been doing both of those since uh, for the last five years. Yeah, and I'm Jonathan Bronner. I have kind of a similar story. I'm, I've been at the University of Kentucky now for just over two years. I'm a graduate from Carolina's Medical Center, but actually grew up down the road from here in Louisville, Kentucky. And I came into the third year clerkship that Dr. Desai was just speaking of after our kind of founding faculty member decided to to move on to some other interests. On top of that, I, I also took on roles as the assistant program director. So we have a very unique setup here at UK because not only are we working with all of the students as they come through my clerkship, but then 
we get to advise them as they move into Samir's. And then, of course, we're in the residency leadership. So we get to review all of those applications and see these students as they really develop and go on to become emergency medicine residents. We have a real continuity of advising here at the University of Kentucky. One of our associate professors and longtime faculty members is actually involved in student affairs. So not only do Dr. Desai and myself have an interface with the students as they come through their clerkships, but we have um, a faculty member who works with them from the very moment they step into medical school and actually works with them in some of their intro to clinical medicine clerkships. So we really get to see and have an influence for emergency medicine all the way through and have helped quite a few students navigate some of these some of these yellow flags. Um, and, you know, like, like everywhere in the entire country, we're starting to see stronger applicants from our school, higher step scores, more experience, more research. And our goal overall, both with the students and, you know, also with, with the folks that we match, is we want everyone that's interested in emergency medicine to get to their goals. Well, that's great, guys. We're excited to have you on today. So let's just jump into this. I mean, the first yellow flag that I can think of, the, the elephant in the room, as you will, has got to be the step scores. So, you know, what do you do if you've got a low step score? And I guess we probably need to define kind of what, what do you think that is? Sure, that's, that's a good question that probably, you know, has uh, many answers to many different program directors and clerkship directors. Um, personally, I think here at UK, and maybe a lot of what we say is kind of based on our personal experience of how we do things here, uh, we kind of look at the average step score for, for step one. I think currently it's about 230, uh, and we're willing you know to look at people with scores much lower than that as well uh, particularly those who rotate here uh, but I think anyone who has a score below uh, you know to, to try to be concrete I'll, I'll give a number and maybe anything below about 215 uh, really has what I would consider a yellow flag with that step score uh, something that they really need to explain or somehow uh, need to explain why we should look past that as, as we evaluate their application. Sounds good. So what do you tell students when they've got a low step score? Let's break it down real quick. Let's talk about that uh, maybe from a step one and a step two, maybe a CKCS perspective. Sure. Um, from my perspective, you know, once they've got a low step score, the, the key things that they have to do is, one, uh, really plan on crushing step two. I think that's probably the most important thing, crushing step two as well as, you know, how they do on their rotations. You know, those are the variables that they can actually still control that are in the future. Uh, you know, you can't really look past, and, and, and you know, though I think there is some usefulness in trying to explain those scores and as far as what happened, and oftentimes there's very good explanations. Uh, you certainly don't want it to come off as an excuse. Um so, so I think, you know, my first advice when they come to me after that step one score and they're asking is, can I still do emergency medicine, is that they certainly can still consider emergency medicine as, uh, as an option, but they really have to do some things to change their, uh, their application, you know, in the future when, when they do apply. Uh, they, can't, uh, they can't, you know, have this consistent uh, low score on, on step two as well. JB, what do you think? You know, I get them in a little bit different situation. They're not actually applying for emergency medicine when they show up for the first rotation in July. And I get all comers, not just people in emergency medicine, but those that sit in my office and tell me that's what they want to do at the beginning of their third year, sometimes look at me wide-eyed with, 
you know, I just got my step one score back and I'm terrified I'm not going to make it. And so one of the things I talked to them about at that point is, you know, do a little introspection and try to figure out why exactly that happened for you. Is this that you're a poor test taker overall? Was there something wrong with the way that you prepared? And, you know, I think having them work through and describe whatever failed in their study habits really helps them to gain some insight. And, and when they do make it to the interview process, you know, we'll show some maturity. And certainly, you know, there are, there are students that go through personal hardships, uh, go through family hardships, um, you know, and these are things that later on, after as Samir said, you work to improve for step two, you can actually address these directly via personal statements, via working through uh, an advisor who's going to write a letter for you. So, you know, I, I think really when when they're at that point, you have to look at yourself and, and show whoever's going to offer you an interview what, how you improved yourself. Gotcha. Yeah, I think there really needs to be a narrative of the ability to improve. I don't think any of us want the perfect resident, but I think we all want someone that can recognize adversity, struggles, overcome those through perseverance and rise to the occasion. And that's what I'm hearing from you. about the uh, step two anything there different step two is a little more complicated in my mind because you know it occurs so much later um you know first of all i think one of the one of the old mantras that you know when i first started advising that i've changed is that if you do well on step one you don't need to take step two until later in the fourth year so that you don't uh, necessarily have to do as well I no longer necessarily uh, advise this to my students anymore because I, there's so many applicants and there's so many out there who've done well on step one and two that I think everyone should just go ahead and take step two early and, and you know and show that and show their worth through that score as well. Uh, so if you do poorly on step two, I think that's that's a huge problem that's going to be a lot harder to overcome than even step one. I, I think a lot of step two is kind of what we in emergency medicine think of as kind of what our job's going to become in you know going forward so it's a lot harder to explain away step two um i think that's a good time to talk to your advisor about whether emergency medicine's still really in your uh ballpark um and you know if you again have something that you can explain on your personal statement as far as why you did poorly on step two it's certainly worth a shot but you know at that point it's going to be a lot harder to to overcome a poor step two score than a poor step one and you know, Scott, this, to your point, I think is really an opportunity to continue that narrative, right? As, as long as this isn't uh, a definite failure and it's not an obvious red flag, remember we're talking about yellow flags here, this is the time where students can highlight other things that make them great applicants. I mean, some people are very good at research and they've got a lot of experience in doing that. Other folks have had leadership positions either in their school or you know in some of our national organizations or you know even outside of emergency medicine and of course you know I had several other work experiences before I came to medical school and all of those things helped me to be successful once I got there so if there are applicants that can describe those things I think that helps their opportunity to go into emergency medicine. So I hear loud and clear what do you recommend besides that narrative? Are there other things you can highlight in your application to kind of uh, overcome this? 
you know, another another option potentially for applicants who have marginal scores, if they have a specific place that they're very interested in going for residency, then then potentially a later rotation is something that can be of help for them, right? We know that the busiest times of year, sometime between July and October for all of our visiting students going into EM, but there are still available spots at a lot of a lot of shops in November or even December. And hey, the we don't have a lot of folks do it in January, but that's still part of interview season. So it is possible to to show that you're interested in a place that may not pick up your application, right? One of hundreds, maybe over a thousand, uh, and pick you out of the stack. But if you go and work in a shop and the spotlight's all on you and you shine, I, I think you give yourself a much, much better chance. Yeah, JB, I think that's a that's a great point you made that uh, that I want to bring up as well. Um, I, we actually did a study here, one of the residents and I, a few years ago, where we looked at where people match, and about sixty to seventy percent of spots in most residencies go to people who rotated during their fourth year there uh, in, in the study that we did, uh, and so it's a, there's a huge opportunity there for people who have any yellow flag, but particularly the step one or step two, to take advantage of that opportunity to go to a place, do really, really well, and at least have, you know, that place and maybe the other place that they rotated at the top of their list as places that, you know, got to know them and got to know them beyond just their score. Sounds good. You guys have any success stories you could uh, share with us on this case? Yeah, we've, you know, over the years, I've had about probably five or six students who had, you know, difficult situations that, you know, we were definitely advising a backup plan uh, that have all been able to match an emergency medicine uh, with, you know, with some really calculated planning. Uh, One of the best ones, honestly, was last year, though. We had a student who uh, had a very low step one score. We were really worried that, you know, she was not going to match after that, that point. Um, she did much better on step two uh, and ended up getting kind of that uh, not quite enough interviews, but still some range, I think probably about five to six interviews. Um, and I suspect she was kind of in the middle of the road on in most of the places she interviewed. Unfortunately, at, on match day, she or a couple of days before match day, she found out she didn't match in emergency medicine. Uh, and so, of course, she was devastated and uh, really frustrated because she had worked so hard to do well on step two. Uh, we went through the SOAP process, and myself and uh, the one of the other faculty were kind of helping her as much as we could. Uh, and she had a couple of opportunities, but none of them really felt right to her. She really uh, wasn't excited about another specialty, and I think it kind of showed when she would converse with these other uh, programs. Uh, and so she actually went through the SOAP program without matching as well. Then, just by chance, as you two may recall, uh, there's places that opened up uh, residency positions in emergency medicine after the match, after the SOAP process. And uh, we actually, you know, we're getting those emails on our listserv, and, and I was immediately calling her, and she was immediately calling them. And she went on multiple interviews uh, to those locations because, you know, she definitely was someone who was qualified, and I was able to, you know, very comfortably vouch for that, uh, as well as the other program or the other uh, uh, faculty member. And at the end of, uh, by the end of, I guess it was probably about uh, May, uh, she actually had a position in emergency medicine in one of the newer programs that opened up uh, last year. 
That is so crazy. And I think we need to put a disclaimer in that results may vary. <laughs> Correct. That's that, not common. That is a very unique situation <laughs> and probably the, the, the most uh, exciting one. The, the other ones are actually, uh, the other times I've had people match was far less exciting, but probably more, uh, more useful in that uh, we've had students who had either failed a step or had to repeat a year of med school. And uh, you know, they worked really hard in their rotations with us as well as on their visiting rotations. And uh, they, you know, you had such strong letters of evaluation. They did better on their step two. And using those, you know, those uh, positives, they were able to get enough interviews and match uh, in one of their, you know, top five places typically. Great stories. Uh, Nate, what other yellow flags do you think about when you think about yellow flags? Yeah, I kind of wanted to ask your opinion about another one here, and that is what do you do about failed or repeated courses during medical school? This is something that's going to be on your transcript. Uh, your interviewer is going to be aware of this, but what do you do? You're sitting there during your interview. Do you just laugh awkwardly? Do you cross your fingers, hope they don't bring it up? I mean, wh how do you actually address that? Well, I, this is this is a great question, Nate, because, you know, I actually run a required clerkship. So, you know, we do have students that, that do poorly. And on October 1st, when the dean's letters come out and your transcript is, you know, already there uploaded to the application, whoever's reviewing those applications for your interview day is, is going to see them. So I think this is something that you absolutely have to address rather than necessarily having someone ask you about it. Again, this depends a little bit on what the issue was, but there's a couple ways, right? You have an opportunity in your personal statement or via an advisor uh, at your school or, or in a clinic or something that you've worked in to, to help say, you know, exactly what happened and how you rectified it. And then I personally appreciate when a, an applicant comes in to speak with us about a residency program and they offer this up in person at their interview. Now, there are occasions when that gets a little uncomfortable for the applicant and can get uncomfortable sometimes for the interviewers, but usually I find it's uncomfortable for everyone when the applicant lets it take over. If they're able to clear the air and then show that they're going to be a, a normal person and, and a successful resident or at least be able to interact like the rest of your residents, you know, that says a lot to me that someone is able to deal with some adversity. And, and as we all know, working in the clinical realm in the emergency department, we, we deal with adversity all day, every day. So that's great. Um, in sort of a similar similar line of thinking here, what about leave of absences from medical school? Obviously, there's uh, lots of different reasons why this may happen. But how do you how do you bring that up? How do you explain that? This is probably one of the the easier things to explain on your application because, as you guys all know, there's a, there's a spot on the application where someone has to specifically answer, did they have a leave of absence and why? And it's interesting, over the years, some people are very clear and uh, about why they left, and it's for a positive reason. They did research for a year, or they um, they had a, you know, a sick family member or something very clear-cut, and they explain it very well, and you kind of walk away thinking, that's of no significance. I'm either more excited about this person or equally, you know, I, I, it doesn't factor in one way or the other. And then sometimes people leave it so vague that you really are left wondering, what was really happening that they had to take a year off or repeat, uh, or, or uh, not necessarily repeat, but uh, had to, you know, 
take a year between uh, two of the medical school years. Uh, and that is never a good feeling. If I have to ask that question during the application, I'm not sure I can potentially use that spot to find out in person. Uh, so you really need to be very clear on, on the answer for that part of the application of why you took a year off. And if it's for something positive like a fellowship or a research or something you're really interested in, and it may not be an emergency medicine, you may not know that you want to do emergency medicine that early in your medical school, um, but you still need to be very clear about you know what interest you had that you know took you on this uh, NIH-funded uh, year or, or something like that. Yeah, and you know, we've, we've had a pretty great success story in our own shop here. We have a current resident who actually rotated as a visiting student in either April or May, which is a very off time, right? This is when we get the ENT folks, the plastics folks, the opto folks that want a little more skills training but aren't necessarily interested in emergency medicine. This then student and now resident had actually taken an extra year in medical school for a teaching fellowship. And his discussion about that was that he has plans for an academic career at his medical school was offered an incredible opportunity. And then we were able to see kind of through that lens that not only did his advisors at his school sing his praises, but when he actually went and did his more standard away rotations uh, during the, the early season for fourth years, all of the other places kind of saw that this guy was a star. And fortunately, we nabbed him up before they could. That's great. The next yellow flag that I think about is a problem with the away rotation. We're all clerkship directors here, and you know we have to be the one of the lead authors on the slow with our other counterparts, but the slow in the away rotation could maybe have some yellow flags in it. So how do you know what's on there? We've all signed letters saying that we will waive the rights to viewing it, but then is there a way to kind of read into what's going to happen on that slow? And what do we do if we sense that there might be a yellow-red flag on that? Boy, that's a, that's a tough one because you're right. I mean, the student probably doesn't have a clear idea, and they're kind of hedging their bets if they assume that something's been said. But I think sometimes it is kind of clear that you're not the right fit at a place and that they kind of didn't feel – they kind of didn't have a great impression of you and you didn't have a great impression of them um, – and I think, you know, as you go to other places and rotate, or I'm sorry, as you go on your interviews and, and discuss your rotations, uh, you can definitely try to voice why that program wasn't the right fit for you. Perhaps, you know, it was a community shop or a university shop and you feel like the other is better fitted for your kind of uh, style and your, your way of learning. Uh, perhaps... Um, Perhaps it was a personality conflict, and you you and that person just didn't quite get along from the get go, or had you know some weird interaction, and you need to just explain it. I don't think, at least my advice has never been to just not submit that slow. Uh, I guess I've never had a situation where a student had just a horrific uh, interaction that they knew was going to show up badly or poorly for them. Um, but that is a difficult situation to deal with. You know, I don't, as a clerkship director, I don't feel great, or I don't think I could, um, I could look into someone's application and tell them, hey, you probably shouldn't submit this letter. It's not a good one for you. I think that would be gaming the system for my applicants or my students more than others. Uh, so, you know, I kind of let the students make the decision about what they're going to submit. Uh, and, and the general rule has always been that you should get a slow from everywhere you rotate. Uh, I think I think you just have to 
be willing to explain uh, to anyone that you interview with uh, what happened potentially. Yeah, that's great advice. Definitely uh, can be a little bit tricky sort of knowing what's going to be written in that slow, but um, certainly why communication is key throughout all these rotations. Now let me bring up uh, another yellow flag, sort of moving in a different direction now, and and hopefully this is not something that applies to uh, most folks out there. But what if you have uh, specific legal issues, like you filled out that part of your application and you had a misdemeanor or a felony uh, that's obviously going to stand out in your application? How do you how do you go about uh, reconciling that during an interview? Uh, this is this is another great great question, and this actually is part of the application that is not completely intuitive unless you read tons and tons of these. And there's actually a section that says, "Have you ever had?" A misdemeanor and, and you have to report these um, but to be honest most of us don't care if you have some kind of minor ticket that you got in college when you were 18 and you got caught up in some mess and you did your community service and uh, and you haven't had any problems since right you got into med school and you did great here we're talking uh, about residency for you but I do think that when you start to see repeat offenses there are some patterns that that makes program directors a little wary, particularly with substance abuse issues. Um, And of course, you know, I think we start to get into red flag land if you start to have those issues while you're in medical school. And those had to be reported now to most, if not all, medical schools. Um, But certainly the programs want to know that. And, you know, here's why it matters, because I'm not sure that all the students understand. But in order to come work in the state of Kentucky, and I would assume in Virginia and Texas and the rest of our states that have programs, you have to be able to get a medical license when you go to work in that state. And if you're not able to get a medical license in the state of Kentucky, it's going to be really difficult for me to rank you. Um, You know, that is more of the practical sense, more for the personal development and the the wellness aspect. As As a program director, we have a lot of concern also about, you know, substance abuse issues that are ongoing and, and, and maybe even mental health issues that are going to affect you while you're in residency. And most most academic centers and even community centers will have resources for you. But, you know, we, we like to know that on the front end so we can put in place all of the things that, that will help you to be successful. Gotcha. So, guys, I think we've heard a lot of really great wisdom here today from our our buddies up in Kentucky. And so, from what I'm hearing here, it's important that we all recognize yellow flags happen. And what I'm hearing is that we need to own our past and make it a strength. Capitalize on that. Show that you are persevering through it. You are overcoming and you're learning from your mistakes because we've all made them. And as yellow flags pertain to us, Nate, what are you taking home from this? Well, you know, I think it's uh, it's certainly impossible to ignore uh, the effect of yellow flags in your application, and, and it's probably more common that you think that students are going to inevitably have yellow flags, and that's okay. They're just parts of our history, like you mentioned, Scott, that uh, may need to be explained a little bit more. And I think truly the the key to addressing these is number one you got to know your application right so everything you wrote down in your application you have to know forwards and backwards know the yellow flags really think about ahead of time how to address these 
how to explain in a positive way during an interview how these uh, challenges uh, or setbacks really uh, kind of improved you as a person. Uh, and, you know, if you're not sure or you don't feel comfortable uh, addressing these, uh, certainly you can go to your advisor. I think many of us out there would, would agree that uh, we'd be happy to sit down, review your application, and uh, talk to you about how to address your specific yellow flags. Uh, so that way you just feel more comfortable when you go on your interviews. Well, that's great. Any closing comments, guys? You know, I, I think uh, one of the, the really neat things about doing this with you guys is that we termed, I think you guys termed it a, a, a term that really hasn't been out there before, the whole term of yellow flag. You know, I think uh, all of us in the court community and, and clerkship director community, we use the word red flag a lot. And, and students honestly never come to me and say, I have a red flag on my application Um you know, am I done? Because I don't think in their mind uh, they see anything as a clear-cut uh, defeat. Uh, they want to keep trying, and, and so oftentimes, you know, what have been termed red flags are actually yellow flags, uh, and these are things that can be overcome and can be uh, part of your application and still part of your success. Uh, so uh, my advice is just like you guys said, you know, own your own your application um, and and, you know, Tell us, tell us why you're still right for emergency medicine and right, why you're right for us, regardless of you know, those kinds of things on your application. This is an exciting time of year. This is an exciting time of year for us as we have our new interns coming in and as we start to look forward to the next class. But really, this should be an exciting time for all of our EM stud listeners out there um, and the students that we're advising every single day because you know, regardless of where you stand in your application, the, the ball is in your court. You worked really hard to get here, and uh, you should celebrate the successes that you've had in life. This is when it starts to get fun. Couldn't have said it better myself. So, guys, if we want to get in touch with you, how do we reach you? Are there websites, Twitter handles that we need to pay attention to? So our residency website is wildcatem.com with no spaces, and you can find me on Twitter at, at Bronsky underscore EM. And Dr. Desai? Sure. Uh, my uh, Twitter handle is SamirMD1. Uh, that's S-A-M-E-E-R-M-D-1. Uh, and we're happy to talk to anybody via Twitter or email or any other way they want to talk to us. Well, guys, thanks for coming on the show. Special thanks to Dr. Jonathan Bronner and Samir Desai from the University of Kentucky on a great episode on Yellow Flags. So on behalf of my rock star partner, ER Dr. Nate, this is your EMED coach, Dr. Scott Weider, signing off for another edition of the EM Stud Podcast. For more information, go to our website at www.cbemcurriculum.com to help you on your journey to become an EM Stud. Interview well, my friends.